Well, uh, as I was preparing to speak to you this week, I came across, I thought, there's this quote that I want to use, but I, I don't remember who said it. And I, I, you know, the great thing about the age that we live in is you just start typing the quote into Google and then things start to appear. And, you know, at least 60% of the time, it's fairly accurate and helpful. But I did some research to make sure. And it turns out this quote is from Mark Twain. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard some of Mark Twain's quotes. I'm sure you've read Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn or something. We had to read Huckleberry Finn, I think, when I was in high school. Uh, So maybe at least in school, but, of course, this great 19th century American author, and he had a knack for turning a phrase. So before we get to the one that I'm going to use this morning, let me just tell you a few other things Mark Twain said. First, my very favorite thing Mark Twain said, clothes make the man. Naked people have little to no influence on society. He said, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. He said, don't go around saying the world owes you a living. The world owes you nothing. It was here first. Uh, He said, I didn't attend the funeral, but I sent a nice letter saying I approved of it. Okay, the one I was actually looking for this morning is this. Every civilization carries the seeds of its own destruction, and the same cycle shows in them all. Every civilization carries the seeds of its own destruction, and the same cycle shows in them all. And this is, in a way, a key theme of the book of Revelation. Every idolatrous nation will be destroyed by her idolatry. We've learned over the last several months that Revelation is actually very practical in telling about our world today. It has more to say about the nature of the world that we live in between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ than it does about some specific stuff that'll happen at the very end. This week, however, we begin to step into the consummation of history, the end of history, in the final judgment of the dragon and human empire. See, what we find in really the last two trumpets, trumpets six and seven, but presaged in the fifth trumpet as well, is that God will bring about the final catastrophic judgment of the kingdom of the dragon through its own hubris and unrepentance. And only those who faithfully put on Christ will be spared God's just wrath. Let me say that again. God will bring about the final catastrophic judgment of the kingdom of the dragon through its own hubris and unrepentance. And only those who faithfully put on Christ will be spared God's just wrath. See, here's what will happen in the broadest sense in Trumpets 6 and 7. God will use the satanic-inspired rage of the nations to exhaust evil in a catastrophic outpouring of violence. Evil will eat itself in a great war. Let me read again from Revelation chapter 16. It says, The fifth angel... So we've gone back a bit. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, 
and the, its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they didn't repent. The sixth angel then poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. These are the figures that we've seen in the previous chapter. Uh, in actually chapters, in chapter 13 in particular, in chapter 12, the dragon in chapter 12, the beast from the sea who is the political leader in chapter 13, and the beast out of the earth who is sort of the spiritual leader, the, prop the mouth of propaganda for the dragon and the beast of the sea. Uh, from these three comes uh, three unclean spirits like frogs, three demons they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then skipping to verse 16, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So first of all, uh, just a, a quick, I think something that will help us sound educated, Armageddon is not so much an event as a place. Armageddon actually translates the Hebrew word uh, that means the mountain of Megiddo. The mountain of Megiddo. And what's happening here? Michael Wilcock, in his commentary on this passage, said, This is the final judgment event of history in which Satan seems to reason, If I can no longer pervert, I will destroy. And he and the beast and the false prophet inspire the kings of the earth, no longer able to maintain the inconstant balance they call peace to a frenzy of mutual slaughter. You may have experienced moments like this in your own life where you can identify a bit with the rage of Satan. You ever get to a place where you are so angry, that you don't care about winning any longer, you just want that person to lose. I have felt this way for 17 years. 17 years ago, the Pittsburgh Steelers cheated to defeat the Seattle Seahawks in the Super Bowl. And to this day, I hope the Steelers lose every game they play. It was awful. It was awful. Ben Roethlisberger scored a touchdown on a play in which his head crossed the line, but his, the ball was a yard back. The officials. The officials were monsters on that day. Matt Hasselbeck threw an interception. And the Pittsburgh Steelers were running it back. And Matt Hasselbeck heroically tackled them as they ran. And he was called for un unnecessary roughness, the quarterback. For 17 years, I have nursed my rage. <laughs> but more seriously, <laughs> you felt like this in the past, haven't you? You get so angry, you don't care anymore about winning or getting the good thing so long as you take that person or everyone else down with you. It's nowhere more clear than with children, is it? There comes a point where, you know, you say, well, I want you to share that toy. Either share that toy or, or put it away and no, or I'll take it. No one gets it. Like, you take it. I won't share it with anybody. We felt like this before. So we know it's possible. 
we know its reason. Herman Melville in the book Moby Dick, Captain Ahab says, to the last I grapple with thee. From hell's heart I stab at thee. And for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. See, there's a great irony here. Though. By the way, I don't know that quote because I ever read Moby Dick, but because I've seen Star Trek too. <laughs> I just didn't want to sound more educated than I actually am. <laughs> but there is a great irony in that the world has aligned itself with the dragon, and yet the dragon will never give them what they want. The dragon is Captain Ahab at the end. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. And I want, I want to show you, God says, okay, Satan, you can do that. See, that's actually what the sixth trumpet is about. In the sixth trumpet, do you remember what it says? What does God do in the sixth trumpet? The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Now, in the ancient world, great rivers, it's even somewhat true today, but rivers are barriers to armies. They protect your, your behind or your flank. They're fortifications against which an enemy cannot advance except at great price, if at all. And God dries up the dividing line. See, the river Euphrates, you might even consider this the boundary of the Roman Empire in some sense. And across the river are all the enemies that Rome is afraid of. They are protected by the river. And God says to the angel, pour out the bowl on the river and dry it up so that at last I will no longer protect from the great war. I will no longer protect from Satan's rage. And we might start to think, God doesn't sound very good about doing that. Shouldn't we avoid war? Well, we have to remember, all of the nations have allied themselves with the dragon. There's no one here who is innocent. God's not saying, go and I'm going to let you free to, to pillage and to do all these terrible things to people who don't deserve it. He's saying, I'm telling you, these people will finally, as Mark Twain said, realize the seeds of their own destruction. They have sown them, they have planted them, and now they are coming ripe. What will happen? God finally will allow Satan to unleash all of his wrath on the earth, and it will be a just judgment. But as a result, as a result of this happening, in the seventh bowl, the kingdom of the dragon is broken forever, never to rise again. In uh, the seventh trumpet here, man, I, I need like a desk in order to preach sometimes. But in the seventh trumpet, it says, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, into the air. And in Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. In the seventh bowl, Satan's power and influence, as well as all who have followed the way of the dragon, are fully and finally judged by God himself. Never, never to rise again. 
it's not just Satan that this is happening to, but it's the entire world system aligned with the dragon and all of the people who have given, who have partnered with it in a sense. In verse 19, uh, in, later in the description of the seventh bowl, it says, the great city split into three parts because of the earthquake and the cities of the nations collapsed and God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And Babylon, in, uh, we know, refers to really two things at the same time in the book of Revelation. It was common to call the Roman Empire Babylon, a sort of code word that the Christians could use to talk about, hey, you know, Babylon is persecuting us, or, or God will judge Babylon. And, you know, if, if they were ever overheard or if the writings were ever found, people would go, well, they're just talking about someplace called Babylon, not someplace called Rome. So we know, first of all, that when it says that uh, God will judge, he will give the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath to Babylon the great. Yes, he's speaking about Rome, but Babylon also refers to the entire world system of which in the day Babylon is simply the most conspicuous part. And say the entire world system is now falling under the wrath of God because they have all tried to rule they have all tried to take the rule that belonged to the lamb for themselves. And they have all abused it. And they have all done terrible things with it. And even if they did their best with it, their best was never enough. Uh, I like to think we have, of course, problems with our criminal justice system. But I'd like to think it's at least more fair and more just than many you find around the rest of the world. Do you remember uh, when DNA testing became a thing? And you could use DNA evidence in trials. Do you remember what one of the immediate outcomes of that was? All sorts of people were set free. All of these false convictions were overturned. And the convictions may have been false in certain times in certain places because the judges and the juries and the lawyers and whoever else were themselves crooked, but sometimes they were overturned because the judges and the juries and the lawyers simply did not have the wisdom of God. If we try and rule on our own, whether we try and rule for good or try and rule for ourselves, try and rule altruistically or try and rule selfishly, we will always fall short. We will always fall short. And we are looking ahead to the great ruler who always judges justly, to Jesus Christ himself. Because being God himself, as Steve was telling us, he understands past, present, and future perfectly and will be able to give justice with a wisdom that no one else possesses. No one can rule apart from Jesus Christ, and yet we try. And so God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every kingdom built in cooperation with the dragon, knowingly or unknowingly, is judged itself. Folks, we have a great country that we're a part of. We have in our... Uh, in our living room, a copy of the Declaration of Independence hanging, because I think it's one of the greatest, actually it was a present for Kayla, so I knew she would like it, but I'm glad it's up there too, because I think it's one of the greatest human documents that's ever been written. And I think that one of the things we ought to do as a country is strive to live up to it, but we don't. We can't. It means there, there will come a day as well where 
our country, the seeds of our own destruction that we have sown will fall too. I don't say this to belittle the nation that we belong to, but to remind us that it's not our hope. Only Jesus Christ can bear the weight of our hope. And notice this. At the end of the seventh trumpet, remember the huge hailstones, each weighing 100 pounds, fall on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because it was so terrible. There's no repentance. There's no recognition, even at the very end, that God, you were right and I was wrong. And I actually think that, in, at least in a small way, this is a description of what hell is. People like to tell you, well, is hell really a place where, you know, you, there's fire and physical pain and torture and all these things? You know, getting into all of that's beyond the scope of what I can do this morning. Yes, I think there's a physical element to it because we are physical creatures. But I also think it's this unrepentance itself, not the knowing that we were wrong, but thinking that we were right that will torture us forever. I'll give you an example of why I think this. It's from the book, The Great Divorce, which I've told you many times is one of my very favorite books. And in it, C.S. Lewis describes purgatory, which is slowly becoming hell. We don't believe in purgatory, but we'll forgive Lewis that. And they describe purgatory as a place where people basically don't get along with each other ever. And they move farther and farther away from each other until they're almost inconceivable distances away from each other. And especially the great people who once lived on earth do this because in a way their sin is greater. And so at one point, someone says, well, uh, you know, once some friends of mine struck out to go find Napoleon and see what he was, because he's a great man. So they, here's, here's from the book. Did they see Napoleon? Yes, they went up and looked through one of the windows of his home. Napoleon was there all right. Well, what was he doing? He was walking up and down, up and down all the time, left to right, or for you, left to right, never stopping for a moment. And the two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never rested. And he was muttering to himself all the time, it was Sult's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English, like that all the time. Never stopped for a moment. A little, fat man, and he looked kind of tired, but he didn't seem able to stop. See, that's what unrepentance does to us at the end of the day. Dwelling on the things and the people we believed have wronged us, unable to see the truth, because we can see the truth, we can never, never stop. What will happen in the, in the sixth and seventh trumpet? There will be this outpouring of final violence that destroys the world's systems. As a result, the kingdom of the dragon is broken forever, never to rise again. And here's what you and I need to remember. Satan's increasing rage and the increasing chaos of the world means the return of Christ is closer than ever. Isn't it strange if you were following along 
The sixth angel, he pours out his bowl, and there are these frogs, and everyone's getting assembled for the great battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then all of a sudden, there's an interruption, and Jesus says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. You think, that feels like an interruption to everything that's happening here. Why does Jesus jump in this way? Well, it's because these Christians are listening to God saying, there's going to be this great war and everyone's going to die. And they're saying, whoa, God. <laughs> like, we're part of everyone, remember? And Jesus is saying, yes, and you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid because the worst things get. The, the more you struggle and the more you suffer, the more you realize you are close to the great day when I am coming back and I will rescue you. And then he gives us something to do, which we'll get, at a, in, get to next. It's just, let's pause here for just a moment, though. The return of Christ is ever closer. And Christians don't need to fear. Remember when Jesus uh, came to Bethany for his friend Lazarus who had died. And uh, he's speaking to his sister and, and his sister says, I know if you were here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus ultimately responds to her, I am the resurrection and the life and he who believes in me, though he dies, he will live. And he who believes in me will never die. You know, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine last year, and the West was struggling to figure out, what do we do about this? Remember what the big concern was? If, we, if, if the West were to support Ukraine, what were we worried would happen? Putin would press the button. Right? Nuclear war. And that'd be the end. And it would be a terrible thing because the day of the Lord is great and terrible. The prophet Joel, sometimes the people of Israel said, oh, we can't wait for the day of the Lord to come and judge all these jerks. Let's paraphrase. And God responds through the prophet Joel by saying, the day of the Lord is a terrible thing. It is necessary, it is just, it is good, but that doesn't mean it's what you should desire. And we hold those things together. What we need to remember in the midst of the sixth and seventh trumpets, as things get worse, the coming of Christ is closer. But what we must do, knowing that the return of Christ is ever closer, we should be spurred by every suffering, by every trouble, by every trial, by everything to continue in the way of the lamb rather, rather than to compromise with the way of the dragon. Because the temptation is to compromise. I mean, I know it's easy to sit back here and be like, oh, those jerks in Washington doing all these horrible, terrible things. I would never do that. I, you know, I would never be part of what they're doing. And we never would be until they give us what we want, right? That's what the meaning of populism is in the first place. A guy who gets up and his only concern is to tell people what they want to hear or so that he or she gets power. And we trade our character and our integrity and our loyalty so we get what we want by giving an unworthy person that power. This is a real temptation. But here's more specifically, what we do about it. 
Jesus said, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Jesus told a parable uh, about the virgins with their lamps, right? They're waiting for a, the wedding party to come, and, and uh, part of the celebration is that the, the, uh, the bridegroom or the bride, I can't remember which, will be escorted into the party by the wedding, this wedding party, uh, among which are the, a bunch of these virgins, and they all have lamps, and the foolish ones, they, they waste all their lamp oil until it goes out. And so when, when the wedding party comes, they can't participate. But the wise ones stayed awake and stayed alert so that they were ready to write their lamps when the wedding party arrived and go. I think this is in mind here. Don't, don't fall asleep. You know, in the ancient world, when it was hot outside, you know, there's no air conditioning there. People slept naked. So stay awake. Keep your garments on. Be aware. Don't relax in your faithfulness to Jesus for even a moment. Otherwise, you may end up with the dragon. Romans 13, 14 says this. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Here's our manifesto, I think. Manifesto for being Christian dissidents in a world ruled by Babylon. Ephesians 5, 6 to 16. I don't have time to read the whole thing. As a matter of fact, I got to go through this as quickly as I possibly can. But if, if you open to this passage, Ephesians 5, 6 to 16, you're going to... See these words. First of all, uh, it says, do not become partners with those who do not imitate God. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. What does that mean? What does it mean to become partners with those who imitate God? Don't throw your lot in with them. Don't look for your salvation in the things that they look for their salvation in. Uh, maybe a good example of what this does and doesn't look like just happened, I think it was yesterday, right? The, the, some of the Republicans partnered with some of the Democrats to put a funding bill together, right? And that doesn't mean the Repub those Republicans became Democrats or those Democrats became Republicans, but they said, there's something that needs to be done, and here's the agreement we have in order to get it done. To become partners with them would be to say, I'm sick of the whole thing, I'm changing my political party. But don't become partners with the people who aren't following the way of the Lamb. There are moments where you may cooperate. There are moments where you will talk. You can build relationships. You can be friends, but do not become partners. Don't throw your lot in with them. Secondly, walk as children of light. We are now children of light, and we can't be light by doing what is, in actuality, darkness. This means walk the way of the lamb rather than the way of the dragon. Don't go and gain power so you can lord it over everyone and get your way. Instead, walk the way of faithfulness to Jesus Christ, even if it means going to the cross. The way of the dragon leads to judgment. It sows the seeds of its own destruction. It's the evil power in the world, even if it's not always recognized that way. The way of the lamb is the way of conquering death rather than being beholden to it. 
the way of faithful testimony to who Jesus is and cooperation with his work in the world to cleanse it of violence and evil by not being violent and evil ourselves. Third, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Remember that the way of the dragon doesn't bring about the true good, the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. It's building man's kingdom. It's building Satan's kingdom at the end of the day. The way of the dragon is always unfruitful. It doesn't get us closer to where we need to be. By the gospel, expose that the way of the dragon is the way of evil. And it's not hard. Now, we don't have to be jerks about it. That's the way of the dragon. (laughs) But pointing out to folks, hey, this choice you're making, is it going to bring you closer to God or farther? Is it going to get us closer to peace or farther? We're going to solve immediate problems while inviting later problems. Are we going to value ourselves over other people? I had a great, I know um, people are talking these days about what's the role of government. And and I'm actually not going to weigh into this particular question, but just use it as an example. What's the way of government? Is it to take care of your own people and everyone else just kind of needs to take care of themselves? Or is it to actually go outside our borders and and to help folks out there? Now, I, I can't answer that question for government. All right, that's not my specialty. But when we take that and apply it to our own lives, sometimes we ask the same question, don't we? We say, okay, so what's my job? Do I need to take care of myself first and then take care of the people around me? Or do I take care of others first and then take care of myself with whatever's left over? Or is it some blending of the two? Does anyone struggle with this question? If you don't, you're probably not thinking deeply enough, to be honest with you. This is a hard question to answer. The answer, I think, is multifaceted in many ways. But let me point something out to you. I had a professor once who did premarital counseling. He was a pastor himself uh, in a previous career. And uh, he said, when I do premarital counseling, I sit the future husband, future wife down, and I say, the very first thing I say is, husband, future husband, your job is to take care of your wife's needs and desires and put them ahead of your own. Wife. Your job is to take care of your husband's desires and needs and put them ahead of your own. And then he said this, and then I would ask them, what happens if you both do your job? What do you think? This is participatory. Then everyone's needs get met. But it has to start with the risk, doesn't it? It has to start with the risk of abandoning your own desires and needs for somebody else's. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And then, I think finally, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Folks, our lives are on purpose. Our lives are right now. I love the sign Mona put together for us. Our time is now. I think about that all the time. It's from a John Foreman song that we sang when we changed the name of the church from First Press to Lemon Cove Community. Our time is now. Can you do anything about the past? Can you guarantee anything about the future? Jesus said, don't worry about the future. You can't do anything about it. Worry about today. It's got enough worries of its own. Notice he didn't say, you know, don't be concerned about anything. He said, be concerned about today. Get to work. 
Make the best use of the time, because the days are evil. First, the age is characterized by evil, and it needs you as followers of Jesus Christ. This world is dying without people who will share the good news and live the way of Jesus Christ, and there is no hope for it. But secondly, The way we should understand the evil of the days is that time is finite. It is slipping away. And we must be urgently about our mission to expose the dragon and show the glory of Christ. Our time is now. As a pastor, I deal quite a bit with folks who are facing the end of life. Sometimes theoretically, sometimes very tangibly. I've been at bedsides uh, where people were moments from death, although I've never been there when someone actually died. And do you know what I often think when I'm sitting there? The days are evil. Here are all of the things I meant to do with this person, for this person. All these things that I meant to say. And there isn't time. And Israel said, oh God, When's the day of the Lord coming? God said, be careful. That's not an easy thing. Because the days are evil. Because the cataclysm is coming. And because there's only so much time. Our time is now.